thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight, we're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis, and we are now covering chapter 15. So for those of you who brought your Bibles with you, please open it, open it up uh, to chapter 15. And if you don't mind uh, regrouping towards the middle aisle, it would be a lot easier on me. I know uh, we Catholics like to spread ourselves as far and wide as we can, uh, make it a little bit easier on me so I don't forget you or don't kind of gonna have to go 880 degrees all the time. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, last chapter, we saw how uh, Abram went forth and came to the aid of his nephew, Lot, who was being captured during this, these wars between the four kings and the five kings. And at the end of this, Abram gave tithe to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed him. And this chapter that we're going to move into is fairly important, and you'll see why in a moment. Um, in, 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 and there is a very important tie to the previous chapter we need to understand. And this chapter in particular has some promises that are foundational for our faith today, and hopefully we'll be able to understand them in our, in our full Christian context. So with that, turn to, page, to chapter 15, and let's read I'm reading from the uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, which tends to be um, far more uh, strict in its uh, literal transliteration. Um, the, um, some of the other versions may be easier to read, more pleasant in their structure, not as dry perhaps, but they're not as precise. And in this, as with everything, precision is very important. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. In these first six chapters, we have the first promise from God to Abram. 
And the next set of verses from 7 all the way to 22 constitute a second promise. And why don't we read it? Uh, even though they're sort of they're, they're distinct, they do form a unity. Verse 7, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I, I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three, year, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought, all, he brought him all these, cut them in two, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, dread and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know of a surety that your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in, in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Pisicites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. There are therefore two promises in this chapter. And throughout Hebrew, Hebrew literature, this whole narrative is known as, uh, by the name, the covenant between the pieces. Because this name derives from the covenant ceremony I just read to you, where you saw the, the fiery smoke and the torch pass between the pieces. I'm going to get back to that and explain it in detail in a minute. As I said earlier, this chapter falls clearly in two parts. Verses 1 through, through 6 are a promise of posterity, and the remaining of the chapter is the gift of the land. The first scene occurs at night, the second scene occurs at dawn, as can be seen in verses 5 and verses 12 and 17. I don't mean at dawn, I mean at sundown. The first is given in a vision, the second in a deep sleep. It is not clear if these two visions occur at the same time, meaning one following the other, but it is clear that they do form a, a one connected whole. Each of these parts have, has the following structure. There are three parts to it. A divine promise in verse 1, and then we'll see it in verse 7. An expression of apprehension by Abraham, verses 2 and following, and then verses 8. And then divine assurance or the divine reassurance by verbal and symbolic action on the part of God. So God says something to Abraham first. Abraham asks questions and God reassures and provides a sign. 
In both sections, God starts by saying, I am. We've heard him say it in the first uh, dialogue. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And then we hear it again um, in the second dialogue. And he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord. Right? This I am is obviously very important um, because this is how Jesus answered his detractors in the temple, specifically talking about Abraham. About Abraham right? When he told them in the Gospel of St. John, Amen, Amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was or I were. I am. Right? That divine title he used to expressly, expressly indicate his divinity. One thing I want to make very clear from the outset, and it's going to be, it will help you if you really focus on it throughout the whole discourse. Who is this voice speaking to Abraham? We know it's God, yes, but specifically, who is it? It is the second person of the Trinity. Okay. There is, in the minds of many, this sort of a division, dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament, which oftentimes people will ascribe to God the Father, kind of, or maybe some, maybe even some other God. It's not really clear who it is, God. And then the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. It isn't so. It is the same God who speaks in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. And so anyone you hear someone say, well, why should we study the Old Testament? We have the New. Right? You need to gently remind them of the fact that the God who spoke in the New Testament is the same God who spoke in the Old and who is continue, continuously speaking to us today in these words. You hear, you, you hear the Lord in the first verse saying, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. Why does the Lord tell Abraham not to fear? Well, obviously, there's a connection with chapter 14. In chapter 14, Abraham went to war against the, the kings who came from Mesopotamia. And he won that war. So one thing he would naturally fear is obviously reprisals on their part. They may attack him. They may come after him. They may try to despoil him. Right? And we know that because God, because in, in, in this verse, the Lord says, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. And this word shield appears 62 times in Scripture. 21 of each are in the Psalms. Where David, or the psalmist, continuously speak of the Lord and saying, My Lord, my God, my fortress, my rock, my refuge, my shield. Right? And we, you know from the history that David was uh, pursued by, um, Saul, by Saul, who wanted to kill him. And in these moments, he always referred to the Lord as being his shield. And that's why we think that the connection between this chapter and the previous one is specific, specifically the notion that Abraham may have thought of himself being in danger because of what he was able to accomplish, that these kings might come back and come and attack him. But... Specifically, there are a, a, numerous connections between the two chapters. I'm, I'll give you only three of them because it can be a little bit tedious. Fear one is one of them. But when he said, I am your shield, magin is the Hebrew word for shield, which recalls the word of God in the, in the, in the previous chapter where he said, who has delivered, and that's spelled M-I-G-G-E-N versus M-A-G-E-N. 
Migin or migin is the word to deliver. So you see the play on word. There's echoes between the two chapters. And it's not once, but many, many times. So for instance, God makes a covenant, Berit, with Abraham, who relied on his human allies, which is uh, Balit Berit, who are the Amorites. So many echoes, many words who recall each other. And if you were to read it in the, in the original, you would be struck by the echo between the two chapters. So you know this is God's response to what Abraham did in chapter 14. So let's, again, remind ourselves what Abraham did in chapter 14. In chapter 14, he went out, put his life in, in danger and the life of the men who were with him and attacked those four kings by night and won the war and freed his nephew Lot. But when he came back, the king of, so of Sodom, who was one who, was, who had been made prisoner by the uh, Mesopotamian king, came out to meet him and told him, give me back the people, but you can keep the spoil. And Abram responded and saying, I swore that I will not have anything from you, lest you say I made Abram rich. And here he wanted to indicate that he didn't want anyone to think Possibly that he went to war not to help his nephew, but rather to become rich. So therefore, he got nothing out of it. But potential dangers. Because now the four kings of Mesopotamia would, might seek revenge against him. And obviously, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah are not going to come to his aid. Because he doesn't have them as allies. He refused their aid or their help. Let's remind ourselves that Abraham was pulled out of Ur, right, of Haran, when he was living there, and God told him, go to the land I will show you. He went there. It's been some years now. He's been living there, a nomadic life. He hasn't settled anywhere. He went down to Egypt, nearly losing his wife because of a very severe famine in the land, came back, had to go to war, and now he has enemies and what has he gained from this whole enterprise when God told him, go down to the land I will show you? Nothing. He doesn't have the land. He's living as a, as a nomad. He doesn't have a place he can call his own. He's got nothing. So, so think about this promise that God made him. He told him, I will make of you a great nation. And so far, this enterprise isn't going very well now, is it? It's not. There's no great nation to, be, to, to speak of. And so this dialogue begins between them. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, when you hear the word reward, what do you think of? Primarily. Something good. Okay, yes. Something good. Give me examples of something good. Ice cream? No? Think of value, yes. Pardon? So, key in on this word, your reward shall be very great. What is God, what does God have in mind? Right? What, what, what does this word reward mean? You know, what is it? Oh Lord, thank you, I'm going to win the lotto tomorrow. I mean, what is it? Right? So now, for the first time, Abraham speaks. Oh Lord God, very rarely will this expression be used in the Old Testament. In the whole of the Pentateuch, 
It may be used maybe four or five times. This expression, O Lord God. It is used most times when someone is in distress. Right? O Lord God, what will thou give me? What is, notice his answer. Notice this man's answer. What will thou give me? What did Abraham spurn back then when he was at... Uh, it's, it's, it is so poignant, if you really understand it. What did the king of Sodom tell him? He said, give me back the people, keep the things. And it's precisely the things that Abraham spurned. What does he want? He wants the people. O Lord God, what wilt thou give me for I continue childless? What is he saying? Just think about that for a second. What is he saying? Yeah? You can ha- yes, but, but what, what else? Yes? What good is all this if I don't have a son to pass it on to? But he's saying something even more. Yeah, but even without going through the spiritual realm for now, just staying with the natural realm, this is true, and this is a deeper meaning of the text, that it is God's revelation to him, absolutely. What wilt thou give me, for I continue childless? So, on the one hand, you can give me things. On the other hand, I continue childless. And whatever you give me will not tip the balance. What's the price of a child? Priceless. Let's go back to that word. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What is that reward? Abram's mind is with God's mind. This man is aligned with God's mind. Verse 5. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your descendants, not your kingdom, your fortune, the amount of gold you have, your power, your army, your strength, your descendants be. That's the reward of which God is speaking. Abraham's descendants are his reward okay how can that be a reward see we shouldn't be taken by some sort of a romantic notion of the scripture oh yeah God is saying this is his reward how is that a reward you and I understand that's why we go to material things because we understand let's say I don't know I do something somebody gives me um, you know some amount of cash that impresses me I consider that to be a reward, right? In, in, the, in the working environment, we use a Latin word, bonus, which has as its root, bonum, which means good, right? So that I can connect with. I can understand. Why? Because it benefits me, right? I mean, a reward has to benefit me. If it doesn't benefit me, how is that a reward? Yeah? You're with me? So, okay, I'm going to look to the stars, see, count all the stars. Obviously, I can't count them. And then, they are my, my descendants. That's my reward. 
That's great, Lord, but I'd be dead by then. And I'm living in a tent. And there are no running utilities around. Where's my reward? Why is that a reward? Did you understand what I'm saying? I don't want you to be taken by some sort of uh, a romantic view of Scripture as if we just have to accept it on face value. Oh, God said your descendants is a reward, therefore it's a reward. Why is it a reward? I got no clue. But God said it must be true. Okay, fine. I'm just going to suffer all my life and someone's going to be a reward. Great. So, I'm asking you, why is it a reward? First, do you understand that the problem here? You have all these descendants, you're not around anymore, but they are your reward. Okay, why is that a reward? Yes. Okay, maybe, you're right, he may be indeed helping build God's kingdom in heaven. Why is that a reward? Yes. Salvation will come through his seed, indeed. Why is that a reward? Ah, now we're getting closer. I said a reward must benefit me. Right? Remember, look, we, we, we have to be very honest with God. We're not doing all this for, for nothing. Okay? We don't work and do all this for nothing. Because God didn't create us for nothing. Yeah? Now, if you're offended by my words, you're going to be offended by St. Peter's words. I mean, he's the first one who said it. When Jesus was talking, Peter was the one who said, Well, Lord... You know, what about us? You've left home, family, wife, kids to follow you. What's in it for us? Jesus wasn't offended by Peter's question. He didn't say, Peter, how dare you question my divinity and ask me these petty little questions that don't matter. He took it very seriously. He said, Amen, Amen, I say to you, anyone who leaves father, mother, land, house for the sake of for my sake, right? His reward will be very great in the kingdom of heaven. His reward. He's going to benefit. You get it? Do you understand? Because if you don't understand that your reward will be really great in heaven, that there is something for you that you're only right now sort of deferring what you're going to get, just as you would if you were investing in a 401k or um, any of these other instruments you might use, right? Or saving money in a piggy bank for Christmas or putting money aside for a, a trip. Just as you would for any other thing, you're doing the same thing. If you're working in God's field, you're deferring your reward. You're saying, I'm not going to take it now. I'm going to invest it and payback is in heaven. Yeah? Yeah? No different. You should be heartened by that. You should be encouraged. You should be hopeful. There is a crown waiting for us. If we keep the race, if we get to heaven, there is a crown. It's an imperishable crown. It's a crown that will never fade. It's a glory that will never fade. Not only that, and that's the key, your reward shall be great in heaven. So, so shall your descendants be. What does that mean? It means, going back to the comments that were made earlier, every time, if you're in heaven, when you get to heaven, hopefully, God willing, every time one of your descendants make it to heaven, your glory increases. You understand? Down the ages. 
Yeah? You understand that? Your reward increases. I mean, come on. There is no better gig than this one. You're just strolling in heaven and you just go check your bank account. And you just you know, got a, you know, a bunch of other billion heavenly money account, whatever that is, because one of your descendants did something great. Your reward shall be great in heaven. God is a God of hope. God is a personal God. He understands our struggles, our needs, our wants, our desires. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows how often we have to put, with, put up with disappointments. How often we have to put up with things that didn't go the way we wanted. How often we had to put our dreams in a drawer and close it shut for the kids. He knows that. And your reward shall be great in heaven. That's why I wanted to make sure you understand it in its personal context. This is not some sort of a pious statement in which we stand and we say, okay, that's great. No, it's personal. Now that I told you this, let me ask this question. How many of you are really eager to see the end of the world? How many? Could you tell me why? Because I'm not, but, but tell me why. Okay, fine, but personally, I'm not. I'd like God to delay for the next 10,000 years. See, i got grand plans. All right, this can grow exponentially. i got seven kids. If each one of them or a bunch of them got another seven, who got another seven, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. I have no intention of getting this to stop anytime soon. I really want it to go for the next 10,000 years. Oh, yeah. Your reward shall be great in heaven. God is not a Scrooge. God is not going to deny us anything. He gave us His Son, the best He's got. You think He's going to deny us something? No. God is a loving God. He's a tender God. He really cares about us and wants the very best for us. And he knows that the very best with us starts with faith. Now, I want you to key on one word here, which is very important. Fear not. Fear not, that expression. Do not be afraid. Fear not. This is a language that is spoken very seldom in the Old Testament. Specifically, Sirach 22.22, Isaiah 8.12, Isaiah 35.4, Jeremiah 30.10, and Jeremiah 46, 27. And that's it. That's where you'll find this expression in the Old Testament. And it is used by the Lord, with the exception of Sirach, where it's a proverb. But other than that, it's the Lord who speaks. And every time, fear not, the Lord is speaking. Right? So when they heard Jesus say to them, as He walked on the water and coming to them, what did He say? It is I, do not be afraid. This is divine title. So anytime you, you see, sometimes the Jehovah Witnesses will come to you and say, well, where does the Bible say Jesus is God? You know, you can't read it anywhere that, that Jesus is God. Right? They actually, by the way, changed the translation. They have a new translation now, adapted to their needs. 
they adjusted it. Okay? Aside from the fact that John tells us, right, that Jesus was God in the, in the very first chapter, and aside, aside the proclamation of faith that St. Thomas made, my Lord and my God, when he knelt before Jesus, you will find it in multiple places, as I told you, before Abraham, I am, fear not, it is I. Those words are spoken by the Lord. And you can see the correspondence in the language. Just as he is telling Abraham, fear not, he told this, the apostles, do not be afraid. And so incidentally, I, I told you this multiple times, but I, let me repeat it now, especially in these circumstances. Anxiety is not from the Lord. God doesn't send your way anxiety. Right? It's not his doing. It's not his making. Know that with surety. God has no intention of making you anxious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Right? The words of the Lord. Do not be anxious. Anxiety is never from the Lord. Okay? Remember that if you're facing anxiety, it's the time to pray. And ask the Lord to deal with it. The other important element I want to bring to your attention is that this kind of language, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. This, also is, this is found also in extra-biblical sources, sources which are not in the Bible. And they're called, it's a literature genre known as Oracle of Assurances. For instance, King Zakir of Harmath and Luath early 8th century before Christ, reports receiving an oracle from the God, from the God Bel Shamayen. Do not fear, Aram al-Tihal, for I have made you king, and I shall stand by you and deliver you from all who set up a siege against you. In like manner, the king Isra-Hadon, no, Isra-Hadon of Assyria, 680 to 669 B.C., receives the same types of words. Why am I pointing this out to you? Because you need to understand that this was language that would have been commonly understood to the readers, to the first readers. That would have immediately understood that to be an oracle of assurance. Not unlike us who miss this context. We don't have that context with us. Right? So it's always important to see what was the overall tone of the literature around, the, around Babylon at the time. Because it can give us the sort of phraseology, sentences, turn of words that would have been commonly understood by the people of God. And as the Catechism reminds us, Holy Scripture is inspired. It is truly the Word of God, but it is couched in man's words. And that's why it's important to understand the culture back then, because God uses our own language to speak to us. Right? I mean, imagine if God were to come to you today and speak angelic. You'd have no idea what he's saying. Right? But we would, he, he can't, he's not using words and, and concepts you're familiar with. But he would use words and concepts you're familiar with to convey his message, and that's what he did back then. Okay? When Abraham says, verse 2, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Back then it was customary 
that a servant of a childless family become their heir, provided he is actually performing the duty of a son, meaning that he will take care, he's showing them, showing them filial respect, he will take care of them in, the, in their old age, and he will offer them appropriate burial, in which case he could then be treated as an heir. And even if after that, other sons were to be, to natural sons be born to the, to the, to the couple, he could not be deprived of his part. You can say, ah, sorry, Charlie, I got Junior over here now, you're out. Doesn't work that way. So that is, again, something that would have been very common back then, and they would have been able to understand it appropriately. All right. One one more thing before we, uh, yeah, two more things. Uh, One thing is really important, but it is not clear if all of this is going on in a dream or waking experience. It's not clear from the text whether Abraham was dreaming all of this, meaning God is speaking to him in a dream, or he was seeing with his own open eyes. Right? And you will notice from the language that God doesn't speak in um, plain terms, because he tells him, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your descendants be. But what is the meaning behind this? It's not revealed. It's only understood afterwards. When it actually comes to pass, you tend to understand what the prophecy or the words of God really meant. Right? So most of the time, as St. John of the Cross teaches us, when we deal with visions or with prophecies or with messages from God or dreams, they are absolutely not easy to interpret. They are very, very tricky. Okay? And it doesn't matter how good they make you feel or how bad they make you feel, your feelings don't count. It doesn't matter how beautiful the dream is, or ugly the dream is, that doesn't count either. And you have to realize that there are really three sources for your dreams, yourself, most of the time, God, very, very seldom, and the devil. And you can't tell them apart. I cannot tell you the number of people who come to me and assure me almost with infallible assurance that they had a dream and God spoke to them. And for some reason I can't really fathom, it seems to really be very prevalent among people from the Middle East. Sometimes I feel that our poor lady has really no time to rest because she's appearing in so many of these dreams. So always exercise prudence, humility, um, and, uh, and obedience by not jumping to conclusions should you have these dreams. Consult a wise priest, share your dream with the priest, and obey him in whatever he says. All right? You'd be far better off than otherwise. Now, one last thing, which is very important here, verse 6. And he believed the Lord... And he reckoned it to him as righteousness or as merit. What was reckoned as righteousness or merit? The belief. Hmm? In other words, God raised Abraham, Abraham based on what? On an act of faith. An act of faith. 
You know, we always say God looks for the intention. What do we mean by that? We mean by that that God looks for those hidden acts of the will, which are the purest expression of our intent. St. Paul tells us, I can go heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the poor, do all these wonderful things. If I have no love, I am nothing. And what does he mean by that? If in my heart, my intent isn't to offer God an act of pure faith, an act of love, then everything I did is worth nothing. And our Lord confirmed these words in the life of St. Therese of Lisieux. St. Therese of Lisieux lived a very hidden life, did a few little things that would not be accounted as heroic by any stretch of the imagination. So one of the things she did is to smile at this one nun that she had some trouble with. None of us would consider that to be heroic. And look what God did with that. Why? Because her intentions were pure. She truly loved him and showed him her love through her intentions. Those little things that she did were the manifestation of a great love. And the reward was not proportionate to the action themselves. It's hardly so. But proportionate to the love that she showed him. Okay? And that is why if a mother is sanctifying her home, if she's sanctifying her husband, if she is keeping everybody in her house on the right path, and all that she's doing is completely hidden from the world. Nobody notices it. Nobody sees it. Nobody pays attention to it. Nobody appreciates it outside her immediate circle. But if she's faithful to the teachings of the church, if she's living a life of grace, and she's doing these acts of love with great love and devotion to God, her reward in heaven shall be immense, beyond imagination. If a man remains faithful to his wife, goes to his job that he doesn't like, that he doesn't derive much pleasure from, but does it, does it well, tries to do the best every day, remains attentive to his children, sacrifice for their, behavior, for their benefit, and does all these things that nobody really pays any attention to, nobody really cares about, and nobody really sees. So his impact on the world is minimal, minuscule, unnoticeable. If he died tomorrow, the world will go on. But in, his, in heaven, his, his reward would be immense. And if a child did nothing but obey his parents and show them little acts of love, that child would advance in sanctity at a very, very rapid pace. That's it. Small things. Pay attention to the small things. It is, it, is, it is a truth of our faith that a beginner in the faith sees always the extraordinary. Right? They, they want to see visions. They want to see manifestations, supernatural things happening, miracles. But those who advance in the faith look for the extraordinary in the very, very ordinary events of their life and sees them 
for what they are, truly extraordinary. That I'm standing before you and I'm speaking to you today, that you're listening to me, that we are here, is truly and profoundly extraordinary. None of us should be here today. If you think about it, if you really take the time, you slow down, and you think about those little things of everyday life and how God is guiding you and me throughout our life, it is truly extraordinary. Our life, after all, is nothing more than a letter of love from God to us. And oftentimes, we don't have the language or the knowledge to read it. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this is so important. This was the cornerstone of the battle that St. Paul has waged against the Judaizers, those Christians who wanted to go back to the temple. Those Christians were telling the, the converts that now that you've been baptized, that's all well and good, but now you have to go be circumcised. And their intention behind circumcision wasn't just the physical act. It was really, you need to go and support the temple. Go, you know, you have to go and then give a tithing to the temple, do the rituals of the temple. In other words, support the entire Levitical structure that was put in place in Exodus. And St. Paul, who knew that this will basically put off all the Gentiles, because it was basically telling them, you're second-class citizen until you do what, all, what the Jews do, fought that battle based on this verse. And his point in the letter to the Hebrews is precisely this. Wasn't that, wasn't that reckoned to Abraham as righteousness? And yet, there was no law. How can you then say, especially his letter to the Galatians, which sometimes you hear from the pulpit, how can you then say that in order for you to be justified, you need the law? And it is one of our, it is one of the tragedies of the 16th century for an Augustinian monk called Luther to have understood what St. Paul was talking about as works in general when St. Paul had in mind the works of the law, meaning the works of the Levitical law, all those things you had to do under the law of the Levites. That's why this particular verse is very important. Very good. Let's move on. Now, in the second dialogue, we already talked about the fact that the Lord says, I am the Lord. This kind of proclamation that starts with, I am so and so, is also part of the culture of the time. You can see it in Hittite and Phoenician, in Hittite treaties and Phoenician royal proclamation. You read those treaties or those proclamations, it always starts with, I am the king so and so, and I am speaking. This is a royal proclamation. The Lord is using the same uh, uh, phraseology, the same structure to convey a very important solemn message over. Right? And you'll see what it is in a minute. Who brought you out. I am the Lord God who brought you out. Suggestive of what? The Decalogue. The Ten Commandments. You go back read the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, verse 2 and following of the book of Exodus. You see that it starts like this. I am the Lord who brought you out from, the bond, from, from Egypt. Right? Very um, powerful words. He's reminding Abraham, I am the one who brought you out. Right? Why is that important? Because Abraham might be thinking, I'm the one who did it. Lord, I did all those things. Right? I came here, did that and the other. Okay, what are you going to do? Saying, Abraham, okay, let's, get this, let's get this one straight. You didn't get yourself to San Diego. 
It wasn't you who decided, I'm going to pick up a plane ticket and get there. It wasn't the one who you did it yourself. You weren't lucky when you bought that house. I am the one who brought you here. It's my work. Before it's yours. Remember that. I am the Lord. In the Jewish consciousness, there are two pivotal formative events in the history of the Jewish people. And these are Abraham, Abraham's exodus from his homeland and the exodus from Egypt. I'm pointing this out to you because on the one hand, you need to be attuned to how the Jews would have understood this text when it was written so you can catch the true meaning of the text. Right? The second, to make you aware of the divergence that, there is, that exists between our understanding of Scripture and the Jewish understanding of Scripture today. For us, the most formative event of the Old Testament is what? What is the most important event of the entire Old Testament? Pardon? Jesus is coming, yes, but He hasn't yet come in the Old Testament, right? What happened in the Old Testament? No, not covenant, not the Passover, not the Ten Commandments. All of those are very important. Ah, that's it. Original sin. That is a formative event for us. Original sin. Not so to the Hebrews. To them, what Adam and did, what Adam and Eve did, was just one of the times where people fell. No worse and no better than, say, when. Um, you know, Abraham, we'll see later with Haggai, or when, you know, Israel decided to betray the Lord and the golden calf, etc. Just one of those events. It is not formative. It is not fundamental. Why? Because it is not internalized. Right? The focus is not on what happens to the soul. The focus is on what happens to the nation, to the land. You see the difference? And just... Just as we have these types of differences with the Hebrews, with the Jews' understanding of Scripture, be aware that most of the time when you're talking to a Protestant friend, their understanding of Scripture is also entirely, completely different. Right? And the, fund the foundations for all the Protestant faith are two pillars that you need to be aware of. Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide. By Scripture alone, by faith alone. All I need is Scripture, and all I need is faith. Work is of no avail. All I have to do is declare that Jesus is my Lord, my God. Now, I'm mostly talking to, about the uh, fundamentalist uh, strain, right? All I need to say is Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, and I'm saved. doesn't matter what I do after that. What I do after that makes no difference. Okay? All that I have to say is make that declaration, and I'm saved. It's done. Work doesn't matter. That's why they don't understand purgatory. They don't understand the saints. They don't understand confession. None of that makes sense. Work has no impact. Jesus does it all, and all I have to say is, He's my Lord and Savior. I make this declaration of faith, sola fide, and He takes care of everything. So, when they come to you, and typically they'll come to you, and they're knowing that you're Catholic, so they look at you in easy prey, and nine out of ten Catholics are easy prey, because they don't know their, their faith. They don't, they don't know the, what they believe in and why. Right? So usually very easy pray. They'll tell you what, do you, what do you pray to Mary? Show me where in Scripture we say I have to pray to Mary. Show me where in Scripture you have, there is confession. And show me where in Scripture there is uh, purgatory. And most Catholics can't even tell them, cannot answer those questions, because most Catholics don't know where they put their Scripture because they don't read it. So forget about showing them where in Scripture is. They need to find out 
where Scripture is to begin with. Remember, if you're talking to them, you need to just, you know, wade through all this fog, set all this aside, and go to the foundation, the two pillars. Sola fide sila scriptura. Sola scriptura is the easiest one to start with. And all you have to ask back is, you believe that all you need is scripture, right? You don't need tradition. No, I don't need tradition. Very good. Please show me in scripture, where does scripture say that all I need is scripture? That's what you have to ask. And then you just stand firm on your question. No, no. Show me exactly where in Scripture it says, all I need is Scripture. And you know what? That's not a thought that comes to mind. Because it's nowhere in Scripture. It ain't there. So you're going to help them think. All right? understanding how somebody sees Scripture is very important if you truly want to engage them. Otherwise, you think that, oh, when you say confession, venial sin, mortal sin, original sin, they understand you. But most of the time, it's completely foreign to their thought. Completely foreign to their thought. Most of them, if you challenge them, you will see that they don't think they're necessarily that original sin has anything to do with their lives today. How shall I know Abraham answers back and says, Lord, how shall I know that this is going to happen? Interestingly enough, God answers him. Why? Because he's a man of faith. He's asking so that he may align himself better with God's will. And whenever we ask with that frame of mind, God answers. But whenever we ask him as a measure of our doubt, meaning, I'm not sure I can trust you, God, so how about you answer me, give me a proof, and then I might consider trusting you. What does God do? He remains silent. How do we know that? From Jesus on the cross. Right? They saw him on the cross, and what did they say? He says that he's the son of God. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Jesus didn't answer because he knew no external proof will ever be sufficient to convert the heart. It's grace. Right? But once you are living in a life of grace and you've been walking with God, you have to enter into conversation with Him. How will that happen, Lord? And God obliges and He provides answers. He's been very specific here, actually. Okay? So He tells him, here's how we're going to do it. And by the way, before I go any further, you can, you can see the contrast between, not the contrast, but you, the, the similarity between him, between Abraham asking this question, how, how shall I know? And Our Lady asking the question in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, how shall this be? See, the same faith. Right? The same faith. But there's a fundamental difference between the two, which is absolutely amazing. I'll tell you about it now. And that is, in the, in the history of the entire humanity, Angels have never, never, never expressed admiration before any human person, with one exception. So for someone like the Archangel Gabriel to express admiration before a a 16-year-old girl, you can tell the sort of glory she had already reached by then, even before the Incarnation. Even before the Incarnation. You can see the 
amazing glory she had reached, where she essentially is able to speak to the, to the angel directly. She's seeing him, and she simply answers back, how shall this be? When all of us would be floored and terrified by the presence of the angel. Well, maybe none of us. I can speak only for myself, I suppose. All right. And then something interesting happens. Let me read it to you again, because uh, it's sort of disconcerting. He said to him, so he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I should possess it? Bring me a heifer, three years old, a she-goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Up to this point, you're thinking, oh, there's going to be sacrifice. But there is no sacrifice. What does the sacrifice require, first and foremost? An altar. There's no altar here. And then what do you do with the sacrifice? You burn them. They were not burned. You notice? None of that happened. What happened? He brought them, cut them in two, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, so obviously some time went by after he did that, for birds of prey to come down, he just chased them away. But he was not burning them. And the piece was just laying there. Okay, and then what happened then? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and lo, dread and great darkness fell upon him. Why? This great darkness is actually the presence of the Lord. St. John of the Cross tells us that he has a beautiful analogy. Work this way. Suppose you look straight at the sun, which obviously I don't recommend. This is just a hypothetical thing, okay? If you were to look straight at the sun, what would you see? Pardon? Assuming you're not blind for a second here. I know it's completely hypothetical. But let's say you could look straight at the sun. What would you see? Pardon? Nothing. Nothing. Right? If you look straight at the sun or a very powerful light, what do you see? Or you're in a room and suddenly somebody turns on a very, very powerful light that floods the entire room. What do you see? Nothing. So what's the difference between a blinding light and darkness? Get it? So, the closer someone is to God, the greater his blindness, because the closer you are to the source of light, the, clo- the greater this light is overpowering and the less you see. Yeah? So, the closer you move towards God, what, do you, what, what, what sense do you have the closer you move towards God? You're moving away. The closer you move to the, the closer you get to the Lord, the greater is your sense that you're actually moving backward from God, because you're seeing less and less. You were accustomed through your senses to to have a to have a um, an understanding of the presence of God in your life. God may give you spiritual consolation, may give you peace in your heart may strengthen you, may give you joy. All those things are called spiritual fruits. All right? And they're good for us because we need them. So when you receive them, rejoice. This is wonderful. So you might be saying the rosary, and suddenly a sense of peace comes upon you. You may have a big decision to make, and you've been really tormented, and suddenly you're all quiet. You know, yeah, that's right. It feels right. 
Hmm? But as you get closer and closer to God, all this goes away. You get none of it. It's all gone. So when it all goes, what does it feel like? Depression. You feel empty. You feel alone. You feel deserted. You have none of the support of the senses. You have none of God's support. You have nothing. That's exactly the dark night of the soul. That is the dark night of the soul. Pardon? What happens after that? Um, no, after the purgation, if you go through the purgation, then you are so united to God, in his case, that you have certainty of, of salvation. That's St. John for you, St. John of the Cross. Pardon? Certainty of purgation. That's, that's the process I'm talking about, because God purges the entire soul of all the attachments that we have to our life here. And he, he cleanses it and prepares the soul for that union of love with Him. Okay? And if you could understand this, many things in your life will start to make sense. So, for instance, the way you suffer, the way everybody suffers, right? Maybe I got news for you. Maybe you didn't know that, but everybody suffers, right? Okay. Um, you, if you were to understand them in the light of purgation, God is preparing you for that union of love, then you would have much consolation in the understanding of pain. And that's why Mother Teresa would say that suffering is God's greatest caress. And let's not kid ourselves. Most of us have absolutely no clue what she's talking about. Right? But in a fundamental sense, it's absolutely true. Right? But it takes one to walk through that journey to get to that point to begin to understand this. But that's where God wants to lead us, or he, might, he may want to. He doesn't necessarily lead everyone to the same path, but that, that's why darkness fell. It wasn't as if God is trying to terrify him, but the simple presence of God so close at hand makes everything fade away, and you can't see God, so you only see darkness. Okay? Um, those of you who may be familiar with the Orthodox tradition may have heard of the word apophatic theology, which is essentially the theology of the negation. In the, the, in the, in the Orthodox tradition, you don't spend your time saying who God is or what God is. You spend your time saying who God is not and what God is not because of what I just described to you. And you reach what they call the great silence. Right? So the great union of love with God is beyond the words. I mean, it's, it's essentially along the lines of the uh, dark night of the soul by St. John of the Cross. Okay, so then a great um, night fell upon him, and then, um, and then something really interesting happens. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know of a surety, so he's confirming this to you, that your descendants will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and... They will be oppressed for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that's all well and good. God is answering Abram's question. Yes? There's only one question we have to ask. 
what's up with all these animals that were cut in half? Except for the birds, right? What up with all of this? God didn't need any of this, right, to tell him what he just said. He could have just told him the same way, right? Abraham, step in my office. Let's sit down and have a negotiation here. No, none of that. Bring me those things. Cut them in half. He did all of this stuff. He chased the Karens away. Then the great dread fell upon him. Then God told him this. Okay, so that doesn't explain it, right? What's the purpose of these things? The next verse. When the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Representing what? The presence of the Lord. Okay? The presence of the Lord. Passed between these pieces. That is why this chapter is called the covenant between the pieces. So you have a pile of the piece on the left and a pile of the piece on the right. And a, and a flaming torch, and I mean the flaming pot and the torch passed between the pieces. Why? To understand this, we have to go to Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 12 through 22. So let me read this to you. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of six years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name, the temple in Jerusalem. So they did this when the Babylonians had encircled Jerusalem. They went all to the covenant and said, okay, the, the, the promise that was done in the book of Leviticus, it's written in the book of Leviticus, we will uphold now. Every six years, if someone sold himself in slavery, in bondage, and he's a, he's a Hebrew, after six years, you as a Hebrew must give, uh, give him his freedom back and he must get his land back again. Obviously, it was never applied by Israel. Never. But then those people, during the siege, went to the temple and said, we're going to do it. We'll uphold the law. We'll do it. The Lord said, all right. He shooed the Babylonians back. Guess what they did? They relented. They didn't do it. Jeremiah was sent. Therefore, says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, says the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant which they made before me, I will make like the calf which they cut into and passed between its parts. I'm not going to read through the rest of the chapter. You can do it on your own. What was the part of the ceremonial? You take a calf, you cut it in two, you make a covenant, and you pass between the two parts saying, may it happen to me like it happened to this calf if I do not obey this covenant. What did you do? You remember the covenant? You see how important I keep on repeating the covenant. Why? Because without it, none of that makes sense. The covenant has what? Blessings and? That's it. What did you just do now? You put yourself under a curse. 
So when did they do this type of ceremonial? This is, was not, by the way, only among the Jews. Okay? So, um, I'm not going to read to you all the references, but you will find them among the Phoenicians, the Hittite, the Greek, the Roman, and the Mari documents, among the uh, Babylonians, all over the region. This was a very known process. Just as it is for us today, if you go to the, to the court, you put your hand on a book, and you say, I swear to... This is the same thing. By the way, when you do that in the court, I've told you this many times, there's always a piece that they leave out conveniently. Because when you put your hand on the, on the Bible, and you say, I swear to say the truth, all the truth, nothing by the truth, nothing by the tr- but the truth, so help me God, and they stop. Because the other part they're supposed to say is, or I'll be damned. And why do they put their hand on the book? They're saying, if I say the truth, if I say the truth and you don't believe me, may all the blessings in this book come upon, my, up, upon me. But if I'm lying and you don't believe me, may all the curses recorded in this book come upon me. That is why we appeal always to the highest court, the court of God. Most people do it and they don't know what they're doing. And if you have any doubt about the curses in the, in, the, in the Bible, go back and read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Or Deuteronomy 26 and Leviticus 28. One of these two combinations. You'll see what I'm talking about. So back then, you take an animal, you cut it in half, you put the two pieces, you walk between the pieces, you just put yourself under a curse. What did, what did God do right now then? When he walked between these two pieces, what did he do? God put himself under a curse. I mean, this provokes such a short short circuit in many, many minds. That, uh, number one, none of the Jewish rabbis can explain this. The only way they explain it is by deflecting this on their enemies. That means anyone who doesn't, who, 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 who who opposes this, will suffer. Because they don't know what to make of God putting himself under a curse. Okay? It seems to make absolutely no sense. Who understood it? Who provided the explanation to this? Who provided the right interpretive key? Obviously, St. Paul. The genius of St. Paul. It took somebody like him completely seeped in scripture, who knew it back and forth, and when illuminated by the Holy Spirit to fully understand God's plan of salvation, because he's the one who said of Jesus what? He made him sin, him who knew no sin, and elsewhere he says, when he was hanged on the tree. Because, St. Paul says, quoting from Deuteronomy, Cursed is the one who, hung, who hangs from the tree. What's the intent of all of this? We said, Abraham is talking to the second person of the Trinity, the one who will become in time the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who's putting himself under a curse. Which curse is that at the end of the day? It is the curse from Adam's sin. He's basically saying, I'm going to take it upon me. So you understand when Jesus died on the cross, we say He freed us from sin. Yes, it is true. He freed us from sin. 
but conjointly, he also freed us from what? The curse. He took the curse upon himself. And he did it right there, knowing what he's going to do 2,000 years later. There's about 1,000 years from Abraham to David, and 1,000 years from David to Jesus. We are now 4,000 years. You with me? Yeah. Hold on to your questions, okay? That is the meaning of this. Otherwise, it absolutely makes no sense. Why is God passing among those things? How could he do that? Well, literally, obviously, God cannot put himself under a curse because God cannot curse God, right? It doesn't work. But the intent, the meaning behind it is, I am going to satisfy this. I am going to make it happen. I take it upon myself. Because at the end of the day, the descendants of Abraham aren't the folks living in Israel today. The descendants of Abraham is us, the church. And that's the promise that he gave him. Right? There are two promises. One about the descendants, and two is about the land. Okay, now quickly, I don't want to keep you longer. It's a very rich chapter. A couple of more thoughts. The land that he told him about, if you go back and read it, and I suggest you do that, you will see that the border of the land is much bigger than Israel today. Okay? Much, much wider. And obviously, again, folks have a problem with that because it's, it spans from the border, the Sinai, Sinai uh, from Sinai all the way to the Euphrates. It's huge. Well, it seems strange until you understand that he's going to give it to his descendants. And Abraham is going to have two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. And you put them together, they cover the land. Okay? So, the most important point for us is to really understand how Way back then, 2,000 years before he became man, Jesus was preparing his coming. And all of Scripture is, as St. John the Baptist says, prepare the way of the Lord. And after his coming, that same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is still guiding us towards what? So we have that, be we have that behind us, the coming of the Lord. What are we looking forward to? The second coming. No different. No different. We are like Abraham, walking as pilgrims on this earth in conversation with God. We meet Him Sunday after Sunday, regularly. We don't have to have surprise visits. It happens every Sunday. And as Abraham's life was, we hope our life to be. Yes, it is not going to be a life of um, pleasure and rest and the vaca an extended vacation that takes us all the way till we die. It's never going to be that. Learn from Abraham. It's never going to be a, a, a life where we can say to ourselves, finally we're somewhere where we're safe and sound and everything is good. It's never going to be a life where we can all going to congregate all faithful Orthodox Catholics in some sort of a ghetto, put a big wall around us, and close ourselves in. Never going to happen like this. We'll live in a world of strife. Every day will, look, will be difficult. Just expect that. This is part of the normal course. 
There'll be challenges. There'll be sorrows. There'll be pain. There'll be suffering. And most often than not, things don't make sense. Life is bewildering. Why is God allowing this to happen? Right? And he answered him. He says, they'll come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites isn't yet complete. Understand this. God is not like us. God is infinitely patient. He is patient with us as we grow in our faith, but he's also patient with the wicked. And he will let them grow in their wickedness. He will do that. He will let someone grow in his wickedness until the cup is filled. St. Jerome, St. Bonaventure, who was a very, very gentle saint, charitable saint, wonderful saint, St. Bonaventure, wrote that the acts of mercy of God towards us are not infinite. They're only finite. And when we stop responding to, to, to Him, we never respond to His mercy. He let us be. He let us go. And then St. Bonaventure says, why do we then endure? Why do we keep on living? And the answer is, as you can get it from this text, the iniquity is not complete. What does that mean? It means that He's increasing their punishment. For just as He increases our glory... He also increases the punishment of the wicked. So his time is not our time. We are impatient. We want things done right now. Both ways. It doesn't work like this. That's why uh, I, I'm studying. This is why I'm walking people through the book of Genesis. Because it's a wonderful example for us. To teach us how we walk today. It's no different. Other than we have the church. And the sacraments. And life of grace. And you know, list of all the treasures which Abraham didn't have. So be not afraid. Take, take heart. Be of great cheer. Be hopeful despite everything. What you're doing is not in vain. It will bear fruit. More than you can ever imagine. For you and your loved ones. That's what God has in store for us. God bless you. We'll say a word of prayer and then we'll, uh, we'll then um, uh, take um, some time for questions. Please stand. In the name of the Father, of the, Word, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.